from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. You're getting ready to color your eggs for this week? I will probably be waiting until the very last second and uh, then, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, not going out and getting the kit with all the nice colorings and being like, I can, I've still got all this green food coloring up in the (laughs) the pantry from when I decided I needed to make green beer for St. Patrick's Day and let me, let me color a couple eggs and uh, get frustrated with it and then just eat the eggs. So, uh, <laughs> sounds like a plan. Yeah, no, it's I, I. I'm always up for hard-boiled eggs, and every now and then I'll even make them into. Uh, I'll make them into deviled eggs, and I love deviled eggs and egg salad. Oh yeah, too. no, it's I. I don't make egg salad quite nearly enough. Uh, I've realized that after years and years of abusing mayonnaise, that I should probably cut back a little bit. Um, but so I don't make egg salad as much and i've used started replacing with my deviled eggs a little bit more mustard instead of mayonnaise and Mm -hmm. uh yeah i'm just i something something about it although i love easter it's a good time of year for the eggs it is i use dry mustard in my Uh, deviled eggs i should do that yeah yeah so Okay, well, of course, you know, all of us were who've been watching the news the last few days uh, so disheartened about what happened in Paris in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Yeah. And uh, I mean, because I, you know, I'm going with the, you know, Dreams Unlimited and the Diz Adventures by Disney, you know, London Paris tour. And I was so looking forward to seeing Notre Dame. I can one-up you on this one, actually. My parents are leaving for Paris from the day we're recording this, a month from today. Oh, gosh. Uh, my dad has been inside multiple times before, so he's because he used to go to Paris all the time for business, and so he's seen it. But it's it's my mom's first time in Paris, uh, much like it'll be your first time. And of course, that was one thing on her list. So she's just slightly disgruntled about the entire oh, thing. Oh, so, but so. I I mean, it ended up being. I guess positive news like they've started releasing the the photos from inside and while they're definitely like you know the roof's gone the spire's gone it does appear that most of the interior structure is in good shape uh, at least as of right now so you know they'll have to clear out the water damage from constantly spraying water and all the ash and issues with that as well as uh, any immediate structural problems but it's they're raising money like crazy like this is they are this and 
Go on. Sorry. I, I just can't imagine how they're going to rebuild that roof the way it was. It's, but, yeah, it's it's yeah. going to take time, but that's like the brilliant thing that, that as the news was happening, like, you know, finding out that luckily someone was good enough and smart enough to come in and make sure that they got like the best renderings of everything on the cathedral so that way if something like this was to ever happen that it could be restored perfectly so oh okay the it exists like they they have the they have the capabilities of of making a replication of it of course it's not going to be the same thing that it was before but it's it's not the first time that they have had to fix up and restore everything with it is a lot of people i think kept reading about it realizing that while while some of the you know the structure itself erected starting in the 1100s completed in the 1300s a lot of the stuff that's there today was through renovations you know a couple hundred years ago not mm-hmm. not 800 years ago when it was all coming together so uh, it's I with the amount of money they're raising and how fast they raised it, I I don't I mean I think in both of our definitely in my lifetime and I'm pretty sure within your lifetime too it will be restored. I don't think they're going to really dilly dally with it. I think they're going to get right to it to to restore it as much as they can. So I hope so. I hope so. Won't be ready for your trip coming up, but I'm no. confident it will be ready the next time you're in yeah. Paris. Yeah. But, uh, of course, folks who listen to, have been listening to me on the Diz for a long time know that in the 60 years of Disneyland series that I did on our Disneyland um, show, uh, there is a connection between the Cathedral of Notre Dame and Sleeping Beauty Castle yeah. at Disneyland. Um, on a, As the story goes, on a visit to Disneyland, author Ray Bradbury saw a very familiar spire on the side of Sleeping Beauty Castle, and he described it as a duplicate of the convoluted and beauteous spire. Okay, y'all know by now, I, I, French is not, <laughs> I know, but the, the Violet Le Duc, I, I don't know how close I am to that. I've heard it a million times. Violet Le Duc. I, Thank you. I don't know. That, that's lovely. <laughs> I just offended um, a lot of people. <laughs> um, anyway, that was raised atop Notre Dame a hundred years ago, is what is what Bradbury said. So he phoned um, Imagineer John Hench and asked John, "How long has that spire been on the side of Sleeping Beauty's castle?" And Hench replied, "Oh, thirty years." And Bradbury remarked that he had never noticed it before and asked, "Who put it there?" And Hench said, "Walt." Yeah. And when Bradbury asked why, Hench said, "Because he loved it." Yeah, so, and it's just a, a very sweet story. Yeah, uh, when I saw that being passed around yesterday, I was like, mm-hmm. I know this from somewhere else. Yeah. So it's uh, that's why you gotta you gotta listen to all the episodes in the archives if if you haven't if you haven't made it outside of connecting with Walt at this point because you're gonna learn that kind of information and so much more. Right, and of course, the spire was not part of the original structure when when the person whom it's named after and I'm, I'm not going to even attempt it again um, to say the name when he was restoring the cathedral he put it up 
he put that spire up there. As, I think it was sort of a monument to himself in yeah. many ways. And and so, um, and, and Walt loved the notion that a, a structure's never completed. Yeah. And and that was sort of that. That was the. The whole concept for the – that really was one of the concepts for the spire being raised was uh, Notre Dame will never be finished. And that was Disneyland's – you know, that was Walt's idea for Disneyland. And that was one – also another reason why he raised the spire on Sleeping Beauty Castle. Yeah. No, and uh, that's – it's an important part as we're all – you know, it, it is it is a building – at the end of the day, it's just a building. It is a symbol, though, and it's one of those icons that that the world knows about Notre Dame. It's not just, you know, maybe it was because of the popularity with Hunchback, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the Disney movie. I'm talking about mm-hmm. obviously before that with the book, and you know, because the story goes with that is that they were planning on trying to get rid of it because it they was going to tear sword. down the yeah. cathedral it, it was it was crumbling yeah yeah and, and then hugo wrote the book a, essentially right. a love letter to it and that saved it and it's become such such an icon since that time and mm-hmm. and you know something like the spire it's yes it's iconic to us because it's all we've ever known as when we're looking at photos of it or being sitting in impressions de France and, and getting to, to see the image when they're on the river and looking at, at the cathedral, you know, we know those images with that spire, but that is just, it's one piece of it that while it has been there for a long time is just a small blip on the history of the entire structure as a whole. And it's it's important to remember stuff like that too. It's it's a shame, and I'm sure they're going to to restore, rebuild, and and put it back up. Maybe even with more now at this point. But it's it's just it's 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 very weird. Is that the Disney connection also runs through it so deeply mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. way with what you were saying with Sleeping Beauty Castle, obviously Hunchback of Notre Dame and, you know, th- like the iconic shot from inside the cathedral, paying homage to the stained glass windows. That's like so, so deeply uh, just burned into all of our minds with it. It's just, it's, it was, it was terrible. That was a bad day sitting there it was, watching I, I it. Was, I was stunned. I I don't really ever get emotional with that stuff. You know, it's, I'm not that type of person that a lot of events like that get to me in that way. But this one, it just, the thought of something being around for 800 years and then in having opportunities that I could have spent money to go and see it and never did. And the fact that it could be gone like that just something made me sick to my stomach with that yeah. but but I will and especially see especially gone in modern times with all the fire codes and all the equipment that we have now uh, to put out fires and all that it, it survived revolutions and wars and and everything and then and then for it to burn yeah. in the modern times i think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it it's unreal so, um, yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of other, uh, uh, watching other things, you know, you brought up last week the trailer for The Lion King, and I, I did watch.
watch it, you know, ah. as what everybody calls the live action. And for, kudos, first of all, to the trainers, the animal trainers. Oh, yeah. No, they, yeah, they've yeah. worked hard. So they could have yeah. been mauled at any point in time, Siegfried and Roy style, but uh, yeah. they yeah, made so it. No. That's my little little acknowledgement to all those people on Facebook who rant about it's not live action. Yes, we know. But uh, it's very impressive looking. Even though I'm I'm starting to weary of all these remakes, this is impressive. Oh, yeah. Um, I hearing John Favreau talk about it, it's you get the sense that when when he set out with Jungle Book and now and moving from that project with what they learned from that upgrading technology even moving on to the Lion King, the man is passionate about making these movies and right there i think that sets it apart from a lot of the Mm -hmm. other remakes that are happening we talked about last week how i enjoyed dumbo and that still stands but i don't believe for a second that tim burton was like this is this passion project that i've wanted to bring to life and i'm i'm doing everything to make it happen i'm pretty sure it's just that he was interested in the project and disney was okay with having him as a director and that's that's the route that it went in and i think that's probably the case for a lot of these uh, reimaginings it's it's more of a a director just being like okay yeah i'll do it and disney's on board with it too and they get the director they want and it just all works out but with with something like lion king having john favreau behind it he the the man he has had his ups and downs in his career as a director as an actor as everything but the passion he's put into the lion king you can already see it just from the trailer and he respects the source Uh, he just it's clear that he is loving everything he's doing right now and he's loving his relationship with disney because he's also of course working on one of the shows that's coming to disney plus the the mandalorian mm-hmm. the star wars uh the star wars uh, series and i think i think we are all greatly benefiting him right from him right now while he is hitting a stride in his career that is just very positive mm-hmm. i agree now, 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 then there was another trailer. I don't know. Did you no. find passion in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker? The first watch, yes. <clears throat> um, I, I think I was like most people. I, I know a couple who were like completely blown away the first time watching it. Uh, you know, I, I was. I was watching it live with the panel as it was happening. So it, even though I was sitting in my office by myself, I felt like I was watching it with everyone who was there in that room. I felt like I was watching it with the world for the very first time, all at the same time. And I think that kind of got in the way. And then, you know, because obviously, like, the, the first shot with Ray going to make her jump up in the air, it's like, okay, this is going to be different. And then seeing Kylo Ren just ultimately destroy in there, some of the the chase scenes that they show, and it was just, it was emotion after emotion. And then after watching it like three more times, I'm like, every time it kind of went down in excitement. And the same thing happened with The Last Jedi, but that didn't happen to me with Force Awakens. So I don't know if... I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. It's yeah, th- this didn't excite me, which I, which surprised me. And my first thing I thought was, 
I, I, from the title, I said, are you telling us that everything in all nine films led to Ray? And I thought, okay, I, I, I'm not sure how excited I am about that. Yeah. And so, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm, it's, I'll see it, but I'm not going in really enthusiastic about it. It's definitely, I, I don't know. May, you know, I'm one of the people that I genuinely enjoy The Last Jedi. I, it's one of my favorites in the series, and I do like The Force Awakens, but I, I don't know. It's maybe there is a sort of fatigue because of throwing in stuff like Rogue One and then Solo in the mix there. It's a, it was a lot of Star Wars in a very short amount of time and then being thrown it at the parks all the time. It's it's not the excitement that there even was in, during the prequels, like for me, where it was that two-year wait and you knew that you had essentially nothing except for those those waits in between minus a little bit of stuff here and there and and even like i remember in the 97 special edition re-releases like that was i oh, went and yeah. saw every one of those in theaters on opening night and that to me like waiting waiting for the next one to come out was that that serious anticipation and this is the first one where and maybe it's just that Endgame is like what I'm amped up for right now, and once we get beyond that, I can look forward to the next thing that I'm I'm sitting at the edge of my seat for. But yeah, I it, every time I watch it, it's the the excitement dies down a little bit, and that didn't really happen with the Force Awakens. So I'm I'm all confused. I'm confused mm-hmm. emotionally. Thanks for asking. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you brought up Disney Plus. It seems like the more news that comes out, the more excited I am for it. Um, uh, and it's only six ninety nine a month, with which has to be a loss leader in order just to get people to sign up. Yeah, it, I mean, I, it technically yes, but then you you look at you don't. Of course, they they have a lot of free stuff just to put on there that's really going to cost them nothing. Yeah, and well, then you. But you also have to look at technically direct to consumer is licensing from the Walt Disney Studios to get that. So mm, it's that true. crap where it's one company ultimately, but they have to buy stuff from the other parts of the company. The same way we we rave on some of the shows about like Disneyland and Walt Disney World are both Disney parks. How how is it that they don't fall under the same? spending structure and such and no it's just it's how disney is set up as a corporation and it doesn't make sense but i you know i until we find out how much is going to be added we already know that it's launching with a ton of stuff 7500 tv episodes over 500 movies all from the catalogs uh, star wars disney animation and live action pixar national geographic marvel and from their disney channel abc shows some family-friendly stuff from fox the simpsons (laughs) the simpsons just (laughs) so so much uh it's it's literally they are going to pile on and release more content than i think any person will be able to watch in one lifetime Mm -hmm. and that has me super excited. I and but at the same time, it's all just it is just Disney. And while I'm all in, I 
if this is if this is something that lasts the entire time I live, I'm sure I will never go a day unless I fall out of my graces that I'm currently in right now. I don't think I'll ever go a day where I'm not subscribed to it. Oh yeah. But at the same time too, like I don't they can't mess around with the price too much because if if they try to raise it too significantly high, then they're they're going to lose people who want more than just who want more than just Disney. So mm-hmm. because, you know, adults without kids. It, they might hit a point in their life where they say, "I want more adult-oriented stuff. I love Disney, but I can I can find Disney in other places. I can get it in the parks. I can get it uh, by buying individual releases. I'm interested in. I can, uh, you know, they can find it in other ways. It's they have to they have to really ride a delicate balance on it. But I'm I'm like you. I'm day one. I will be. I know where I'm going to be on November twelfth. Oh yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. And it's a reminder about our Waltland bus tour with Bob Gurr. That is May 19th. Uh, you can sign up for it. I'll be there. This is Connecting with Walt Day uh, on the Waltland bus tour with Bob Gurr. Um, go to waltland.com and enter your discount code UNPLUGGED, all lowercase. And of course, on main for, and you'll get some money off. And, of course, wear your Connecting with Walt um, or your Diz shirt on that day. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we're going to work out taking a group photo yeah. with Bob. So, um, And he, he has his Connecting with Walt shirt, too. So, anyway, so we're looking forward um, to seeing you on May 19th. Anyway, well, this week we are continuing our exploration of Walt Disney World's Epcot. It is the first non-castle theme park developed and constructed by the Walt Disney Company. In previous episodes, we have discussed Walt Disney's ideas for the environmental prototype community of tomorrow and Progress City, how the company struggled with Walt's concept after his passing. And um, I should say it was experimental prototype community of tomorrow. I don't why I always say environment, but um, <laughs> after his passing, and maybe it's because Earth Day's coming up. Anyway, but um, and and you know, and anyway, um, you know, basically how the company struggles Walt's concept after his passing, and then um, and then what led to the eventual construction and opening of Epcot Center on October first, nineteen eighty two. In episode 86 of Connecting with Walt, we talked about the construction of the spaceship Earth structure. And in the next couple of episodes, we're going to explore the development of the attraction inside the sphere. So we're finally at the fun stuff along the way. Now, Spaceship Earth, and that was a term first used by Buckminster Fuller, as we explained in our previous Spaceship Earth episode, was an opening day Epcot Center attraction, and it tells the story of communication through the ages. This is a beloved, complex attraction befitting the icon of the park, and in many ways it tells the story of Epcot Center. The science fiction writer Ray Bradbury helped Imagineers write the original concept using Buckminster Fuller's basic ideas. The final script would be written by my um, Imagineering and Ray Bradbury with research done by Peggy Ferris of the Smithsonian Institute and by the Huntington Library and the Universities of Chicago and Southern California. The book reference for the script was 19 pages. 
Now, the script Bradbury wrote, and that is available online, um, identified communication as mankind's primary method of survival throughout the ages. The theme was communication and free enterprise and how it enabled man to acquire the best information and techniques available to make the wisest decisions for survival. According to Bradbury, if we learned how mankind historically used communication to achieve the advances that led us to the present, that knowledge and understanding would help us make even greater advances in the future. And that's why it actually does also fit perfectly in where it is in terms of the park. You know, everything that branched out around it really is it's it shows how humans have evolved in further ways you know whether it was with world of motion and and the idea of how transportation was furthered and and, and continuing going on with that uh, you know eventually with imagination the land and farming and agriculture and the seas and everything mm-hmm. with that and eventually horizons down the way universe of energy it's all furthered but uh, to get to those places and to to really move forward with that they it really did require communication communication was at the center of it all so absolutely it's, it's fitting in that way it's mm-hmm. it's something underlooked especially as epcot has evolved over the years and that's it's kind of lost in that way mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and now this now this concept of Bradbury's meant Spaceship Earth, Epcot Center signature attraction would be a ride into the future, beginning as a ride into the past. Now, at a gentle two feet per second, guests glide in their Omnimover past a series of historical vignettes covering approximately forty thousand years of humankind's history. However, Imagineers managed to make history exciting with a dramatic script, detailed sets, and audio animatronic figures. And in my opinion, Spaceship Earth represents some of the best showmanship and storytelling in any Disney park. Agree. Now, the Bell System was the attraction's original sponsor. For the first version of Spaceship Earth, it was long held that Vic Perrin was the attraction's narrator. However, in 2008, Imagineer Marty Sklar stated that Larry Dobkins was the narrator. So it's surprising that there could be so much confusion over Spaceship Earth's first narrator. Yeah. I, I remember going on message boards and all the websites and remember seeing the debate around mm-hmm. this time. And there, there are some people who are, you know, they were steadfast in, in their decision of who the person was that that had a part in it and it's 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 amazing the things that we bicker and argue about as disney fans that are it is are so silly but it's nowadays there is no question about who is doing what uh it's we will find an answer to anything <laughs> so so are you a, a perrin person or a dobkins person uh, i mean i you know i'll say i'm more of a Dobkins person based on based on Marty's word mm-hmm. but it's you know there's there's a lot of people who are on team Perrin so mm-hmm. I just I trust Marty okay but well both actors did voiceover work for many Walt Disney World attractions at the time 
and they both have a similar vocal delivery. Now, when Perrin passed away in 1989, his major obituaries included references to his vocal work for both Spaceship Earth and the original Universe of Energy, although the Orlando Sentinel only referenced his work for the Universe of Energy. When Dobkins passed away in 2002, no major obituaries referenced his vocal work for the Hall of Presidents nor Spaceship Earth. Now, all of my reference books, including those written by Disney historians and Imagineers, all state Vic Perrin as the first narrator for Spaceship Earth. Now, Perrin was a character actor in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and he may be best remembered as the control voice in the original version of the TV series, The Outer Limits. So you're Team Perrin. I tend to lean that way. Okay. So, uh, but, you know, but you never know. You never know what could be unearthed. It's fine. We'll have Wills get started on the shirts right now. Team Perrin, <laughs> Team Dobkins. No one will understand, but we'll all know. <laughs> That's right. As long as, it has, as long as it has the connecting with Walt logo on it. Uh, uh, that'll be on the sleeve. Maybe that's too expensive <laughs> to do that. <laughs> okay. The queue for the original Spaceship Earth attraction began with guests entering the pavilion and walking up a short ramp. On the walls around them, two large posters showed Spaceship Earth at night and read, Ride the Time Machine from the dawn of civilization to the beginning of our tomorrow. Spaceship Earth. Nearby, a large mural showed astronauts working on a satellite with Earth in the background. And the mural was framed with small pictures depicting cavemen, Romans, Egyptians, the printing press, and finally, modern humans. After passing through the queue, guests boarded their small blue Omnimover vehicle. Now, some show scenes have changed over the years, but the same basic flow of scenes has remained the same. Every version of the attraction's ride has begun with a steep incline from the loading area up into the sphere. In the early years, a fog machine created a mist, which the Omnimover vehicles, which is your time machine, passed through on their initial ascent into the time tunnel or vortex, transporting you back in time. All guests could see was a purple cloud with stars all around it. A flash of lightning would periodically strike from the cloud. Now, I, I should have stopped you before, but I love the mural. I mm -hmm. think that is, it's literally one of my favorite pieces of art that I, I like in Disney parks. It's just, it is, not enough people appreciate it. That's just my opinion on it. But oh, no, I it think it's is, a beautiful mural. Yeah, it's one of those things. I'll find myself taking a picture of it, like, maybe, like, once every two or three months. And I'm like, I'm going to make this my phone background because I <laughs> love it that much. And then I never do and repeat and forget, repeat, forget, repeat. And But it's, it's just, it's epic. I love it. <laughs> well, at the top of this lift hill... We are at the lowest of the three levels within the sphere in a northeastern quadrant. Here, guests see images of cavemen fighting woolly mammoths. The narrator tells the guests that they were entering the ancient caves where humans first interacted. A scene showing an ancient medicine man talking to other cavemen could be seen here, with cave paintings showing the first humans writing their thoughts down. 
The narrator then described the woolly mammoth scene, informing guests that humans used communication in order to survive. The large projection screen in this scene would wrap around the side of the Omnimover track as it made a U-turn to follow the spiral path upward around the sphere's perimeter. As the ride vehicles moved forward, guests could see an Egyptian making papyrus sometime between 1567 to 1085 BC. And across the way, an elaborate Egyptian building could be seen with hieroglyphics decorating hieroglyphs decorating the archways. And further down the way, a pharaoh was shown dictating to a scribe, and his wife sat next to him as servants fanned the royal couple. Yes, and I believe the Egyptian uh, making papyrus was their pounding reeds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. All right. At this point, the scene shifted to a seaport in the 9th century B.C., And here, two Phoenician sailors could be seen trading goods and information from their two connected boats. And they are described as creating a common alphabet so different cultures could communicate. On the right, guests could see the ocean with stars shining on the horizon. And this scene brings us to the end of the first tier of the sphere. And we leave there appreciating those Phoenicians who made it so easy to learn our ABCs. That's true. And we true. should that's, thank them for it. That's later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, that's much later. That's in the next episode. <laughs> so, okay. Beneath, well, passing beneath a grand stone archway, the Omnimovers then move forward in time to Greece in 428 BC, and also taking us to the second tier of the sphere. And here a scene depicting a Greek theater could be seen with two men acting out Oedipus Rex, and the sharing of information flourishes. As guests continued their journey through time, they came upon a Roman soldier riding in a chariot, and he was exchanging information with another man who was wearing a toga. In the background, a painted wall depicted Rome as another chariot passed by. Yeah, that was awesome. Little, mm-hmm. little part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it gets grander and grander as we sort of move along. Yeah. So, so fluted columns rise up around the Omnimovers as a scene of the vast expanse of ancient Rome's roads illustrate the vast expanse of, sh- of how knowledge is being shared. Uh, as guests continued, they could see ruins of a smoldering building with an appropriately smoky scent being pumped in to enhance the experience. The narrator informed guests that the excess of Rome has led to its destruction. A scene showing the Islamic wise men sitting in a circle discussing books was then shown, indicating all was not lost because Jewish and Arabic scholars have their libraries of knowledge safely intact. To their left was a library with unfilled shelves, inside of which two men could be seen reading. Continuing forward into the Dark Ages, on the guest's right, an astronomer could be seen on a balcony investigating the stars. Further down the path, two Benedictine monks were shown copying text by hand, with the monk on the right having fallen asleep on the job. Clearly, there must be an easier way to record knowledge, and the next scene showed us how. And I'm still waiting for that monk to wake up and just freak us all out one day. (laughs) 
but that hopefully never. Funny. I I would <laughs> I if that was a practical joke they played one day, like Johnny Depp showing up in Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. I would I, I would probably have a heart attack right then and there. <laughs> I I would lose it. Well, as guests entered the Renaissance scene, Johann Gutenberg and his associate could be seen working on the printing press. Um, guests then moved forward to Italy in the 16th century. To the right, a man was shown reading a book to two others, whilst just beyond them, two musicians played music in front of a small Italian town. On guests' left, various artists were working. Um, one was mixing paint, one painting fruit, and one sculpting. Knowledge once again flourishes as highlighted by painters, sculptors, and musicians of the Renaissance surrounding the Omnimover track. Further ahead on the left, as we come to the end of the second tier of the sphere, guests could see Michelangelo lying on scaffolding, painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. A conveyance system brought buckets of paint up to the artist as he painted. Yeah, and I think we need to remember that the reason why people care about the Sistine Chapel to this day is because Disney fans have long embraced this scene and made it a, a destination. Otherwise, oh, no one yes. no one would care about it. Uh, no oh, one absolutely. goes to the Vatican trying to see Sistine Chapel. It's just all Spaceship Earth fans. But, <laughs> uh, in my case, that, that was... Mm-hmm. The, that's why I wanted to see it so bad. So and oh. it, 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 it holds up. It lives oh, up to good, good. So, so, so it looks it looks like this scene in Spaceship Earth, huh? Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> the one thing I will give Spaceship Earth credit is they made it very. It, it does like you know it shows an accurate way of how he painted it, and you only need to stand there staring up at the ceiling for about ten seconds to realize, like, okay, he did have to lay down when you're painting oh, yeah. the ceiling. That would just kill your neck. I mean, it's mm-hmm. Kevin has famously said on other shows and stuff when viewing it, bring a mirror so that way you don't even have to look at it at all. Well, I mean, I'm not going to go all the way to the Sistine Chapel and then look at it in a mirror. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, I, I have to admit that, that, that the reason why I've always been enamored with it before I even took art history classes was solely because of Spaceship Earth. So... I guess I'm a nerd in that way, but mm. I'm proud of it. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. have been have the same inspiration. So, following the Renaissance, guests move forward in time to the 18th and 19th century and the third tier of the sphere. New technology for communication is shown through a quick succession of scenes. The first thing that guests would see in the modern era was the steam-powered printing press, which was invented by William Bullock in 1863. Whilst a man inspected the newspaper that came out of the press, further on, a young newsboy stood on a street corner selling a stack of New York Daily newspapers. As the vehicles continued on, guests could see a man dictating a telegram to another who sent it out, whilst a train passed by on a railroad. On their left, guests could then see telephone wires stretching all across the scene, and various phone conversations could be heard. Moving forward, guests passed by a woman sitting in a cinema ticket booth. Three screens on her left showed old black and white movies. The first screen showed a movie about a runaway trolley. The second showed two people dancing. And the final screen showed the Walt Disney film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
Across the way, guests could see a scene depicting the WDP, Walt Disney Productions, radio station, where a man and a woman could be found acting out a radio show inside of a sound booth. Outside the booth, an engineer monitored the sound level. To the right of the scene, a radio tower was shown with waves emanating from it. As time progressed, the vehicles passed a scene depicting a mother, father, and daughter watching TV in their living room. Four other televisions hung on the wall behind the family, which would change channels, showing various television shows. Shows that could be seen here included Ozzy and Harriet, the 1964 NFL Colts vs. Browns championship game, Ed Sullivan with the Harlem Globetrotters, Walter Cronkite, and Walt Disney introducing an episode of The Wonderful World of Color. No Gilligan's Island, though. No, no, not that. It's fine. So. It's okay. The next few scenes on this third tier have changed for almost every version of the attraction, with most referring to technological advances and computers. Guests could then see the Network Operations Center, where network lines and satellites were monitored. The center housed a map of Florida, the United States, and even a view of the entire globe from the North Pole. The man sat in front of these maps, watching them, whilst a woman was seated to his right. The ride vehicles then entered the data flow tunnel, meant to replicate the dramatic flow of information and acceleration of knowledge, and and this was illustrated with high-speed lights flying by. Here, the narrator said, "'Verged on the threshold of infinity,' We see our world as it truly is, small, silent, fragile, alive, a drifting island in the midnight sky. It is our spaceship, our spaceship Earth. This narration marked the point where guests were at the top of the sphere and the spaceship Earth planetarium. Now in outer space, guests could see Earth in the distance, surrounded by stars, Also at the top of the sphere was a large space station and two satellites. And from the space station, a young woman was controlling a a mechanical arm to assist the astronauts in repairing the larger of the two satellites. In passing by this scene, guests would then enter the space station's hangar, going beneath the girl in the window who would wave and begin their descent. As the ride vehicles rotated 180 degrees and began to descend backwards down the central core of the sphere through infinite stars and the ever-changing descent tunnel, guests could see more clouds of dust, similar to the one at the beginning of the attraction on their right. And further down, guests saw various scenes on connected monitors, and scenes shown on the monitors included children from around the world holding hands, a human using a telescope, and DNA chains. All of the monitors were connected by fiber optic strands, showing how everything was connected now through communication. Guests could also hear people around the world talking to each other and exchanging information. And lastly, before unloading, guests would see a series of dots which resembled circuits and hear one final narration. Now our future world draws near and we face the challenge of tomorrow. We must return and take command of our spaceship Earth. 
to become captains of our own destiny, to reach out and fulfill our dreams. Our journey has been long. From primal caves, we have ventured forth, traveling the endless corridors of time, seeking answers to our tomorrow. With growing knowledge and growing communication, we have changed our lives, changed our worlds. From the reaches of space to the depths of the sea, we have spun a vast electronic network linking ourselves as fellow passengers together on spaceship Earth. Today, our search for understanding is unbounded by space and time. Vast stores of information, knowledge from everywhere, standing ready at our beck and call to reach us in an instant. With our great network, we harness our knowledge, give it shape and form to serve us, to help create and communicate a better awareness of ourselves and our world. Ours is the age of knowledge, the age of choice and opportunity. Tomorrow's world approaches, so let us listen and learn. Let us explore and question and understand. Let us go forth and discover the wisdom to guide great spaceship Earth to the uncharted seas of the future. Let us dare to fulfill our destiny. I'm sorry, but that's just beautiful. Like... I think it is. Why can't we have that much hope and optimism and <laughs> and just general good feelings in this mm-hmm. day and age? Like that's that's art. That and, that and, entire written statement. Yeah, and a sense of camaraderie and mission. Yeah, you know. Yeah. All of the versions of Spaceship Earth. Uh, few cite the original version, though, as one of their favorites. Surprisingly, it lacked a musical score, and many of the guests found the narration dry and too factual. However, more than seven and a half million guests rode the attraction in its first year. Now, the original post-show area for the first two versions of the attraction was called Earth Station, and it was designed to be Epcot Center's guest relations area in a sort of futuristic electronic town square. So what was here was Epcot Center guest relations, seven large rear projection screens mounted on the walls of the exhibit space toward the ceiling that displayed films of various Epcot Center attractions, and a central screen showed park news and updates. There's world key information, and these were interactive kiosks that offered previews of various Epcot Center attractions. Guests could also talk to a live cast member via two-way closed-circuit video or make a restaurant reservation whilst in the park. An Earth Station housed 10 of the park's 29 world key screens. The others were located in Communicore, which is today's Interventions, and at an outpost at the German Pavilion. Now, I did not realize, I, I knew about world key, so I think that's been shared. Uh, actually, even as of recently, in a lot of uh, panels about Epcot, uh, I know, like, at the last anniversary of Epcot, at the T23 presentation about it, they made sure to give some love to World Key, and it's been here and there around, but I I didn't realize about guest relations, and Mm -hmm. uh, then, like, you were talking about the the projector screens, and they're displaying the the films of of Epcot Center, like, that's really cool. I, I wish it could go back to being a 
a joint system like this. I mean, it's it would be a complete cluster. It could never it could never work in this day and age where guest relations is always packed with a line on on top of, you know, just people getting off the attraction and mosing, but I it just sounds like a a perfect use of that space, of that area. It, so it was neat, and World Keys seems so innovative and so futuristic. You know, at I, the time, it's. I mean, it it kind of it, it was, and the idea of it still is in a way. I mean, now we, you know, making restaurant reservations in the park, being able to like, you know, well, now chat we do with it on a live phones. cast member. Exactly. <laughs> now we all do it on our phones, and so it. It was ahead of the times in that, so it's it's just another another huge step uh, that Epcot was in front of all of us in terms of what was happening. But I I love the the more I hear about this from you here, I, I love that more. I don't, I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention or people get like really hung up on World Key and and cite that as the the cool aspect about early Epcot, but. This that that the entire concept of that area, which I feel like has been not used properly for as long as I can remember. Like it sounds like they were at their peak at the beginning. I, they were. Well, that's when they were so much into innovation, and you can say it when they cared. <laughs> well, and, and when it had the clear mission of, you know, they wanted they wanted to showcase future technology and and. And, uh, you know, what we were capable of doing through the, the different sciences and mm-hmm. through the different um, areas of knowledge and exploration. And, you know, it, it seems like as sort of civilization loses hope for the future, that, that's almost sort of been reflected in, in future world of Epcot. Yeah. Now, did and, you do the... F- design. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Did, did you do the first version of the attraction? I did, yeah. And I did. I I was blown away by it. I mean, just the whole concept of it, because you know there was nothing like this ever made. And and I loved history, so I thought it was very well done. And I didn't find it dry at all. Yeah. I was mesmerized by it. And that, yeah, you and know, I was a teenager, you know, when it came out. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, that's where kind of like what where you're saying like there was no musical score, but I'm assuming that there was at least sound effects from the scenes mm-hmm. happening um throughout so i feel like i feel like there was enough if from you know i'm just guessing i know there's probably attraction videos out there of it it's one of those things that i haven't really gone back i've watched i've watched the walter cronkite version and i experienced the jeremy irons i i would have experienced walter cronkite too and so i i you know i i know all of those but this is one version that i just really haven't ever dive deep into not not because of a lack of caring just i i kind of always forget about it and push it to the back of my mind but it's you know it, it's still a lot of what the attract what the attraction is at this point to this day just just more straightforward it seems like from mm-hmm. from what you're saying with a heavy narration and and kind of getting to the point of it all but that's not a bad thing. I love reading history books. So this is like a, it's like an audio book with visuals. Mm-hmm. It's like a picture book come to life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, now that we've taken our first ride on Spaceship Earth, let's take a ride this week through Disney history. And this is the week of April 21st. So, Craig, you all set to go here? I hope so. If not, then there's no waiting for me. Okay, great. All right. Okay, uh, for April 21st, in a press release on April 21st, 2008, the Walt Disney Company announced the launching of a prestigious new production banner. What is its name? Um, I believe I know this one because uh, the it was... A a, uh, it's it's a banner that's still to this day. I think this was when Disney Earth was created. Mm -hmm. Or no, Disney Disney Nature. Nature. Disney Nature. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. And the press release went on to state that it will literally go to the ends of the earth to produce major big screen nature documentaries. So, in the tradition of the old True Life Adventure series, the first film to be released domestically under Disney Nature will be Earth in April 2009. And, of course, we're looking forward to Penguins yes. being released shortly. I cannot wait for that. So I'm uh, looking forward to it. It's actually this, uh, I believe, already as of this recording. Ah, excellent. So, or not as of the release, not as of the recording, though. I, I, I'm really looking forward to it, though. It looks... Me too. Look like they nailed it. I, I, I like all the Disney nature yeah, me too. Um, releases, so... Okay, April 22nd, on Easter Sunday, April 22nd, 1962, a colorful hot air balloon leaves the plaza hub of Disneyland following a traditional old-fashioned Easter parade down Main Street, USA. In what popular film did guests see the same hot air balloon? Oh, I... no idea. Okay, it's not a Disney film. If that helps. That does not help. No. Okay. It's the 1956 feature film Around the World in 80 Days. See, I'm glad I didn't guess because, like, the only hot air balloon that was, like, registering in my brain was from Wizard of Oz. So, oh, okay. Well, that would have been a good guess. You never yeah, know. That's still embarrassing, <laughs> though. I'm not sure if they used a real balloon in that one. I'm sure it was not real, and that's why it was embarrassing. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. April 23rd. The Warner Brothers crime drama film The Public Enemy, starring James Cagney and Gene Harlow, is released on April 23rd, 1931. What is this film's Disney connection. Wow. Hey, th- thanks for throwing me a softball here. Of course, it was in the great movie, right? Rest in peace. It, it was. It was. And the film tells the story of a young man's rise in the criminal underworld in Prohibition era urban America. Yes. And if that's your introduction through Great Movie Ride, uh, you know, if you were lucky enough to experience that, of like learning about Jimmy Cagney, you know, it, it, I, you have to see Yankee Doodle Dandy. While oh, yeah. like, while <laughs> you know he did his his fair share of uh, crime stuff, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy is his ultimate film. It's mm-hmm. so awesome. I watch it every every year, right around the fourth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. So is this one, Public Enemy? Yes, yeah, so, no, it's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, April twenty fourth. 
What film director, producer, and screenwriter was born in New York City, though raised in Philadelphia on April 24, 1951? He may be best known to Disney fans for directing the 1982 film Tron and co-producing and co-writing the 2010 sequel Tron Legacy. He also had a cameo role in Tron Legacy as Shaddix, a program who works as a bartender in the End of the Line Club. Along with Bonnie McBird, he also created the animated series Tron uprising I have no idea I, oh, I thought you would have known I know you're a big Tron fan I am I don't think I ever realized before that I don't know who directed it though so, Steven Lisberger or Lisberger I, yeah I, I wouldn't I don't think I ever really put it together like I, I, I don't yeah. I, I try to always pay attention who a director is but there are some where it's just didn't click and uh, a lot of older movies sometimes that's the case i just didn't ever know that with tron so i'll add it to my brain i forgot okay, it already okay. All right. <laughs> okay, April 25th. What new exhibition opened at epcot on april 25th 2007 hmm, 2007 What opened in 2007? Um, I feel like I feel like I'm blanking on this one. You probably yeah. know this next week. Project Tomorrow, Inventing the Wonders of the Future, opened in the post-show area of Spaceship Earth, although the, hmm. a lot of the attractions in it wouldn't open until a little later on. So, yeah, anyway. okay. That's, okay, yeah, that's kind <laughs> of coming back to me on there. So, okay. I, it, next week I'll get it. Ask uh-huh. it again next week. Okay. Yeah. April 26th, what actor and Disney attraction voice artist was born in Menominee, I don't know how to say it, Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Sorry to all you Wisconsinites. On April 26, 1916, fans of the 1960s cartoon Johnny Quest will remember him as the voice of the evil Dr. Zinn. Uh, Why are you... You may have heard him in Epcot Center. That's I I I've I I've seen nineteen sixties Johnny Quest, but I don't it's not it's not connecting with me. Okay, that's I was throwing you another bone here. Vic Perrin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one-time narrator of Epcot Spaceship Earth and Universe of Energy. Well, or Larry Dobkins maybe if you want. I'll find out when his birthday is. Yeah. Uh, he is his best known as the control voice of course in the original version of the 1960s TV series The Outer Limits. You couldn't have thrown me Outer Limits too. It's a pity before <laughs> no, you completely move on. That's fine. That's fine. It's, fine. it's okay. It's okay. I, that would have been too much of a hint. Mm, well, that's sometimes. why I had to save the doc, the Johnny Quest one. It's fine. I will remember this one day. <laughs> April twenty seventh. 
Disneyland wraps up its first celebration of this popular ABC TV series on April 27, 1958, with live performances by the series cast. What is the name of this television series? Hmm. So, 58. So, it's early. Um... Way before Star Wars days. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's... Or soap opera days or whatever they had. The three that. things that kind of connect with me during early Disneyland, I would say it's, you know, obviously Davy Crockett and Mickey Mouse Club and Zorro. Those are kind of like the three that mm-hmm. would... Don, I'm... Maybe Mickey Mouse Club yeah. on there? No, it's Zorro. Oh, During okay. Zorro days, the cast, including Guy Williams, appears in parades each day and performs in Frontierland for four shows daily. There will be two more major Zorro appearances at Disneyland in 1958, May 30th to June 1st, and November 27th through the 30th. So, you see, it's, it's Walt was doing this kind of stuff yeah, way that's a- back in 1958. You know what synergy it, with Star Wars and yeah. soap operas and stuff. And, and now that you you said it, I I feel like I have heard that one before, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And no, it, it's kind of funny to see that still years and years and years later we are still doing that. Sixty years later, it still it still exists. So it's funny. Yeah, yeah, I know. See, Walt, yeah. Walt was a pioneer. Well, we hope that you will enjoy us next week. We had a great ride on the first version of Spaceship Earth. We hope you will enjoy you will enjoy join us next week as we ride through the other versions of Spaceship Earth. We we share some fun facts with you and maybe we'll We'll speculate and talk about some rumors that may be in the future for Spaceship Earth. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me uh, on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, the Disneyland Edition podcast, the uh, Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, the Universal Edition podcast, uh, Connecting with Walt, you might have heard of that one, uh, <laughs> and various other videos here and there, and then always on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at www.info.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And before we go, I almost forgot to let you know that many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including The Thinking Fan's Guide to Walt Disney World, Epcot by Aaron Wallace, The Epcot Explorer's Encyclopedia, A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R.A. Peterson, and Secret Stories of Walt Disney World by Jim Corcus. Also, a couple of website articles that I found interesting were the um, Spaceship Earth, the Mickey wiki and history of the ride spaceship earth by the kingdom insider i'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife carol bowling for her invaluable work locating the additional material needed for this episode this series on spaceship earth uh these were the final episodes she assisted me with before her passing um it 
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disneyunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. And a very happy Passover and a happy Easter to all of you from all of us. Bye.